This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Equity Mike. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. I am always excited for these expert investor interviews, and we've got a really exciting one today, a return guest. We often talk about this podcast as an opportunity to connect with some of the best minds in Australian finance, and we've got one of the best minds here today. We do, Ren. It's with great pleasure that we can welcome Chris Weldon from Magellan back to the podcast. Chris, thanks for your time today. Pleasure. I thought you guys must be talking about someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) It's great to be back, guys. It's also, i got to say, great to see the podcast doing so well. I can't sort of by these days without uh, this popping right up the top. So well done. Thank you. It, it was all your previous episode, Chris. That's what that's what really got us over the hump. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you who have just joined the show for the first time, firstly, welcome. As Ren mentioned, we have had Chris on the show before and we recommend going back and listening to that episode because it was a, a fantastic insight into some of the work that Chris is doing at Magellan. But a bit of a brief background, Chris is Portfolio Manager of Magellan's High Conviction Fund as well as an assistant portfolio manager on the global equities strategy. He's CFA charter holder and holds a Bachelor of Commerce and a Bachelor of Business Management from the University of Queensland. And he's a member of Magellan's Investment Committee. And as you've probably heard, Alec and I are very much interested in what Magellan are doing at the moment. And we will touch on that later in this episode. But again, Chris, thanks for your time and we'll get stuck into it. Sounds good, guys. So it's not just Bryce and I that are interested in Magellan. It's a lot of the Equitymates community. There's a lot of Magellan chat in the Equitymates Facebook discussion group. So hopefully everyone gets a bit out of this and learns some more about one of the funds that definitely is most talked about in the community. But before we get into all of that, Chris, we like to start with a bit of a game. We call it overrated or underrated, where we throw out an index or a topic that's big in the financial media at the moment. And we get your thoughts on whether it's overrated or underrated. We've got a bit of a twist for the game today, just because obviously COVID-19 has been front and center of everyone's mind. 
So we want to play overrated, underrated, but specifically about things that have been in the news or in investors' minds around this COVID-19 crisis. So with that in mind, are you up for playing? <laughs> with, the, with the usual caveat that we've got no idea about many of these things, probably not in the spirit of the game to pass, but yeah, sure, let's do it. <laughs> Look, if you want to pass, if you want to say fairly rated, they're all perfectly fine answers. But I think this will be a good one because obviously Bryce and I sit on the sidelines and look at the industry. You're in the middle of it in the investment committee meeting. So we're interested to get your thoughts on some of these themes. So if we kick it off domestically, we obviously have seen a big crash and then a rebound. So to start with overrated or underrated, the rebound in the ASX 200 index. You know, I don't even know where the ASX 200 index is at the moment. And that's that's genuinely honest. You know, a better feel for some of the global markets. So I'm going to have to say fairly rated on the ASX 200 because I simply have no idea <laughs> if it's down, if it's up, where it's trading at the moment relative to fair value and all those sort of things. So probably fairly valued. Well, fascinating. We'll unpack that in a bit. Then moving overseas, similar to ASX 200, overrated or underrated, the rebound in the S&P 500 modestly overrated any thoughts on why it's probably pricing in as far as we can tell the s&p 500 is probably pricing in a bit more of an optimistic scenario than we've got as our central case but who knows that the market could very well be right it is definitely one scenario we have in mind but i'd say our central scenario is a little less optimistic than the the cycle that seems to be priced in by the s&p at the moment yeah, it, it, it does feel very optimistic. It fell 40% and is up almost 40% as well, only down sort of 7% from its pre-COVID high. So yeah, a lot of optimism or a lot of money in the US. I'm sure we'll unpack that. But if we turn to the government's response, overrated or underrated the fiscal response from the Australian government? I'm going to take a slight, I'm going to say underappreciated. You know, I think it's the, the size of the fiscal policy response by the Australian government and, you know, the, the success more broadly of the policy response across both the economy and the health side of things has been in a relative sense and an absolute sense very good, to be fair, as far as we can tell. So I'm going to say, you know, probably underrated and, and perhaps underappreciated. How about overrated or underrated the $60 billion accounting <laughs> blunder that they then came to uh, <laughs> uncover? Look, no one's going to get it exactly right. That's a big number, obviously, so that's <laughs> fine. But it probably speaks to the real issue that there's obviously room for policy mistake with all of these things in policies already announced and policies we'll probably see in the months, quarters and years ahead. So moving overseas to the response by the US Fed, overrated or underrated the infinite QE approach that they're going to be taking? Yeah, I mean, you could almost argue both underrated in the sense that it certainly had an impact on markets. You can't define exactly how much, but they've been very meaningful steps the Fed has taken. It's obviously provided some short-term support to, to markets and economic activity. So in that sense, you know, it's maybe overrated, but perhaps the longer-term consequences are these policies inflationary, deflationary? What does it mean for government balance sheets around the world? All those sort of things. Those longer-term question marks are probably underrated at this point. Yeah, Bryce is more and more becoming a Bitcoin truther as he uh, as he <laughs> follows more of Bitcoin Twitter. And yeah, he's definitely worried about this infinite QE and what it will do to the US dollar. But Long um, Bitcoin. <laughs> if we talk about Australia and we, well, I guess even the world, and there's a lot of conversation that's starting to emerge that we're 
out of the woods and we've basically had a V-shaped recovery. What do you think about those headlines and that that sort of conversation? Do you think it's it's overrating our chances or it's underappreciating the risks? I think, um, I think Ren, you sort of you kind of nailed it there by pointing out both Australia and the rest of the world. It's it's a question that is pretty local. And as I mentioned earlier, I think Australia, pleasingly, you know, we've done a, a relatively good job so far. And so the V-shaped cycle might be a bit more relevant here, uh, even if it's not relevant in certain other economies around the world. So for Australia, maybe it's underrated for the rest of the world, perhaps overrated. And then to close it out, you know, we were speaking before the show about everyone's move to working from home. So overrated or underrated, the concern for commercial REITs, particularly of obviously in, in the office space? Probably underrated, that that could be a structural headwind to that space going forward. It's not, not an area that we're particularly focused on or knowledgeable about, but you can kind of see some structural headwinds that that space will have to deal with going forward. Yeah, it seems there's going to be some long-term pain in that sector. But, you know, we're not a property investing podcast, so we won't dwell on that for too long. As we said, Chris, at the outset, you know, you've been in the investment committee meetings for Magellan throughout the this crazy last two or three months. And so to kick off this interview today, I would love to sort of have you take us inside the room and inside some of the conversations that were happening to understand how, you know, the best in the business were approaching this. So... If we start when the market really started to fall in late February, what was the mood like at Magellan? What was the conversations that were happening and how did you and the team approach this coronavirus crisis? It's a great question, Alec. And, and maybe I'll just make one clarifying statement at, uh, to start with. You mentioned the investment committee. Our investment committee at Magellan is, is different from our portfolio manager team. We don't have a portfolio management committee formally, but we do have a formal investment committee. That investment committee is a quality filter. Effectively, the investment committee determines the pond from which the portfolio managers can fish. So unless it's a company has been approved by the investment committee, we can't own it in any of the portfolios. But then it's the portfolio manager's decision-making that influences portfolio construction, not the investment committee. So just just clarifying that point, I think you're, you're probably more asking around the portfolio managers and the decisions that they were making through the first quarter. It's probably important just to kind of step back for us at Magellan. You know, I'd say, I don't know what exactly the right number is. No one can know, but you know, maybe 90% plus of the time, we think most market moves have very little information value. We tend not to pay attention to what's going on in markets day by day or week by week. It's true that you'll get the very occasional national event or global event, you know, think of something like 9-11, where things can sort of change on a dime, where you get these dramatic changes very, very rapidly. But I'd say most of the time, and coronavirus and the recent sort of market events are probably more along the lines of what I'm going to describe here. They're, they're iterative. You know, they, they progress over time. They're not the sort of one big bang event. And so... You know, it's hard to your question, it's hard to pinpoint, you know, the first move, the first action, the first time we were discussing this because that discussion happened over a series of days and weeks. But it, but it is true that at some point along the progression of that discussion, and this really was in March, we kind of hit a threshold level where the degree of concern that we had regarding COVID and the impact on societies around the world and economies around the world, we just thought the probabilities of some pretty ugly macro scenarios got to such a high level that we thought it was appropriate 
to shift across all of our portfolios to a much more defensive posture, which is very much true and very much aligned with the objective that one of the very core objectives we have for all of our portfolios at Magellan is capital preservation. And as I mentioned, given we, you know, we foresaw potentially some pretty ugly economic scenarios, and we thought the probabilities of those were elevated. We thought it was appropriate because of that objective of protecting our clients' capital to shift to that more defensive posture. But I just sort of reiterate, you know, it's almost coming back to that that Ben Graham meta principle, perhaps, that the market does not exist to instruct you and it exists to serve you. So we're not looking for lessons from the market necessarily. If anything, we're looking into market moves for opportunities to do some sensible things that might help us achieve the objectives we've got for our clients. You know, we very much approach it with Ben Graham's Mr. Market mentor model. We, you know, we feel like we're in business every day. Our business partner is this manic depressive Mr. Market and some days he's incredibly optimistic and exuberant and he's willing to buy and sell businesses at a very high price and you get to decide as a public equity investor whether you want to engage in that transaction with him. You do not have to. But on other days, he'll come in to the, to the office virtually at the moment, very depressed, very despondent, very pessimistic, and will buy and sell his half of the business at very low prices. And again, you have the not the obligation, but the opportunity to transact with him at those low prices. But there's no requirement to do that. And that's, you know, this is then extending, I guess, to Buffett's fat pitch mental model where you know, investing is kind of like baseball where you just get to stand at the plate and watch pitch after pitch after pitch come through. But investing is better than baseball in the sense that there's no umpire there calling three strikes. You just get to patiently disciplined wait until the, the sort of so-called fat pitch arrives and then you get to swing and there's no strikes called in the meantime. So we're not trying to read the tea leaves on market moves on an individual day or week. We do recognize sometimes market moves are very much associated with very meaningful economic and other developments. COVID was obviously an example of that, but I'd just sort of stress again that it wasn't a single aha moment for something like COVID. It was it was a progression over a series of weeks where we were sort of really connecting the dots, watching it obviously start in China, spread to Iran, spread to Italy, spread to Seattle in the US and then across the US, paying attention to all those things and allowing that to inform the probabilities, not the certainties, but the probabilities of what might might follow. And then just trying to relate all of those macro thoughts and how that would impact businesses and industries, relate all of that to prevailing prices at the time. And sometimes we've got the opportunity to sell things opportunistically. We've also had the ability to, to buy some things opportunistically through that volatility as well. But importantly, that volatility, the mindset is that volatility is there to serve us, not to instruct us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So, Chris, you mentioned Buffett there, and one thing that we're interested in is getting people's opinion on his moves during this market sort of drop. And given that he hasn't bought anything, I'm interested to understand what you think about that. Is it unusual or or was it what you would expect him to do? It is a good question. I guess the the general narrative is a little surprising that he didn't do something, but there's always so much you can't know what's going on behind the scenes there. So we can say that he didn't do anything meaningful, any meaningful buying on the public equities side. What we don't get visibility into is any deals on the private equity side that might have been in front of him or were not in front of him. You know, so so there's no visibility there. Maybe he is still working on things we don't know. Time will tell. So a couple of other thoughts. I mean, it obviously was a very sharp drawdown, a very sharp rebound. So there wasn't a huge amount of time and he's got some pretty substantial resources to put to work. But it, it is also true that he seemed, to me at least, quite negative and quite despondent and as cautious as I'd seen him at an annual meeting in May this year as I'd seen him for quite some time. I think he has you know, genuine concerns around the economic outlook, which is interesting when you consider the breadth of economic data that he has coming into his inbox on any given day, given the portfolio companies that he has, I I thought that was quite interesting. It may also be the case, keep in mind, that one of the big channels that he deployed capital through back in the GFC was, you know, that kind of lender of last resort channel. And some of the Fed actions so far this cycle have really prevented him from deploying capital to businesses under short-term financial stress. The Fed has really taken that opportunity away from Berkshire so far so that he hasn't had that lever to pull. We don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. As far as I could tell, he seemed pretty negative around sort of short-term economic prospects. You know, we'll have to see what was potentially a little more surprising with all that said was that he didn't meaningfully increase the buybacks. It wouldn't have been a surprise rather if we'd seen him engage in some pretty meaningful buyback actions during that volatility in in March. But again, time will tell. Maybe he was doing things that we don't yet know about, and he may have been looking at things that we just will never know. So Chris, in your last answer, you said that Magellan had been doing some opportunistic buying and selling. I'm interested to know if you can tell us any specific names that you were opportunistically buying and selling. We don't. We don't want to. You know, we don't want you to reveal any secrets. Well, well, actually, we would love you to reveal secrets. But yeah, I'm interested what you can tell us about the opportunistic buying and selling in that period. We've been pretty public in terms of the uh, portfolio actions that the High Conviction Fund and the Global Fund took during March and and even April. We've got some April disclosure out there now as well. The commonalities across both those portfolios is a very meaningful increase in cash and an overall shift to defensive positioning for the macro reasons that that we can really get into if you want. But cash in high conviction went from about 6% at the start of March to about 28% at the end of March. So a very meaningful increase in cash. Cash in the global fund went from about 6% to 17%. So also very meaningful increase in cash. And the opportunistic buying we were doing in high conviction was we added 10 cent to the portfolio. That was a position we had not owned before, but we were very fortunate to pick up what I I think is a very, very high quality business with wonderful long-term prospects and is also a short-term beneficiary 
of some of the coronavirus-related issues, which is interesting. You know, we sort of didn't go into this with a short-term mindset or short-term opportunistic trade around coronavirus, but it is true that it's been a beneficiary of this period when so many other businesses and industries are suffering. And then in the global fund, some of the opportunistic buying was around you know, the highest quality defensive equities that we already owned in the portfolio. You know, some of the, the wonderful utility and infrastructure businesses, the very high quality healthcare and consumer defensive businesses, we were adding to those positions. On balance, obviously, we were selling more than we were buying. And that's why cash went up quite meaningfully. And we were selling some of the more cyclical and economically sensitive holdings. We just wanted to change the overall exposure in the portfolio to some of those industries. And what we were buying in global was the, the very high quality defensive stuff. And within high conviction, where we actually exited two positions, we exited LVMH and we exited Young Brands. So I just want to mention that for full disclosure. The opportunistic buying, to your question, was a new position and a meaningful position in Tencent. And we'll certainly touch on that a bit later. A lot of our audience, Chris, went through like a wide array of emotions, particularly given that many of us hadn't experienced something like this before. So, you know, there was a lot of panic selling going on, fear of missing out when the market started to turn and, and rocket up. And then obviously a lot of people feeling like they've done very well since or fortunate to be in some stocks that have done very well. And so you've mentioned there that you're, you're selling some stocks and then buying into others. How do you think about buying into a market as it's falling? And what sort of key indicators are you looking for to pull the trigger? Because one thing that Alec and I have very much noticed, and we both felt that, oh, no, you know, we've missed the boat in some respects, but we've noticed the likes of yourself and other fund managers actually are very patient when it comes to buying back into the market. So yeah, what are those trigger points that you look for to do so? Sort of at the risk of covering a bit of old ground, I don't think we're paying too much attention to the market prices aside from the opportunities that they throw at us. So I think what we're really spending our time on sort of trying to answer your question here is how is the attention of the investment team directed? It's really directed towards, you know, the medium and long-term prospects for the businesses in our universe, for the industries in our universe, thinking through the fundamentals and the prospects, and then just cross-checking that with prevailing prices for shares for those companies. I don't think there's a particular science or anything particularly unique that we're doing from a process point of view in those periods. I think where we are advantaged is our process lends itself, given our high conviction portfolios, you know, we don't have to find lots of great ideas and we can be disciplined and we can be patient waiting for those great ideas. And because of our long-term investment horizon, not trying to tie markets in the short term and catch the bounce or protect against the, the, the downturn, those sort of things, you know, we're really playing the long-term absolute return compounding game through wonderful businesses. And so we're constantly, the investment team is constantly sort of stress testing those businesses, thinking about downside cases from a fundamental point of view, not necessarily from a market point of view, market price point of view, but, you know, what could go wrong with the economic cycle, with industry disruption, business risks, all those sort of things. We're constantly running those sort of downside scenarios, but we're not trying to pick, you know, where markets are going short term. We just sort of view markets as providing us the optionality and the opportunity to do some sensible things from time to time, that the, the attention of the team is spent trying to think through long-term fundamentals of the businesses and trying to translate those fundamentals into a conservative estimate of fair value. And then sometimes markets just give us that opportunity to, to increase exposures to those wonderful businesses. Sometimes at different points in the market cycle, you know, we feel like 
all those wonderful prospects are pri- or close to or fully priced into prices. We might be lightening up our positions in some fairly valued or overvalued positions. But we're not trying to sort of read the tea leaves of markets too much and trying to decipher short-term market moves, just using it as an opportunity to do some sensible things to try and drive those good outcomes for clients over time. So Chris, if you're not looking at the short-term market movements, but obviously the short-term economic shock that was the coronavirus and the subsequent shutdown probably changed the worst case scenario for a lot of the businesses that were in your sort of investing universe. How did you think about having a long-term time horizon and investing in businesses that have great prospects for the long term, but also analyzing, you know, would would they be able to survive the short term in many cases? That is a very good question because I think that gets right to the heart of our investment process. So let me just take a second to kind of describe what I mean there. We talk about our process at Magellan having three pillars. The first is the bottom-up fundamental research on wonderful businesses. And the second part of the process is a sort of top-down macro overlay, really looking out for macro risks as well as macro opportunities. And what this period has done is really married those two bodies of work. So, of course, as you mentioned, Ren, you know, we're sort of doing the top-down macro work. We're thinking through the possible macro scenarios and the possibilities and probabilities of those various scenarios. But then we've got to translate that into thinking through fundamental prospects for each of the companies, recognizing that all of our companies have slightly different geographic exposures and industry exposures. And therefore, the prospects for each of those companies is going to differ. You know, if you're a business 100% exposed to Italy through this crisis, that's very different from thinking through a business that might have been 100% exposed to China or to Australia or one of the economies doing relatively well through this period. So it's really marrying that top-down work with the bottom-up work that the, that the wonderful investment team are doing that sort of allows us to think through and think through the opportunity set. It's both parts of the process working together there. And so as we were doing that, informed by some of that macro top-down work, recognising where the real stresses were potentially in the economic system and which countries were most at risk, the analysts covering the various businesses were trying to think through what does that mean for the short-term, medium-term, long-term fundamental prospects. For some businesses, it creates short-term headwinds. And that would be true for businesses like LVMH and Estee Lauder, Visa, MasterCard, Alphabet, Facebook, just by virtue of the industries in which they operate, the countries in which they operate, the, the nature of the products that they produce and that they sell or the services that they sell. In this economic environment, the one that we think is most likely, they've got some short-term headwinds to deal with. They've still got wonderful long-term prospects, all six of those businesses, but they're a little more challenged in the short term. And therefore, we want to think about right-sizing the exposure to those sort of businesses given that the probabilities, the macro world has changed, you know, we, we want to reflect that. We think it's appropriate to, to dial down the risk in this world. And therefore, we were trimming some of those positions. Or in the case of high conviction, I mentioned we exited LVMH. But there's also businesses we recognise in this economic environment, again, marrying the macro views with the bottom-up stock business industry work that the analysts are doing. There's going to be businesses that benefit through this period, And they would be businesses like a lot of the enterprise software 
big tech players, Microsoft and SAP, some of the Chinese digital platforms, Tencent, Alibaba, all of those businesses have seen a dramatic acceleration in very, very important parts of their business, which was always kind of the attraction, the long-term thesis. It's just that this, this coronavirus period has really brought forward demand and increase the conviction around those long-term trends that are in existence for those businesses. So there are puts and takes. Some businesses are obviously benefiting from this period. Many are obviously suffering. And we just wanted to, you know, to the extent that price has allowed us to, opportunistically reflect that in the portfolio by dialing down the exposure to where there were some more sort of shorter-term risks and uncertainties and increasing exposure to, again, really wonderful businesses like all of them are, but that benefit from this period and where that was not fully reflected in the price when we were doing that buying. So Chris, you've mentioned some specific stocks there and we're about to get into a more detailed conversation about three stocks that you're looking at at Magellan. So we're pretty keen to get stuck into that. Before then, I've got one more question and I ask it in the full knowledge that you guys don't love looking at the market movements and uh, how the index is, is performing, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Obviously, we had a big fall in around the world, but US large caps didn't even fall back to their long-term median price-to-earnings ratio. And in previous recessions, we've had an initial fall, a recovery, and then a further fall. So asking you to predict the future a little bit, but what do you think the rest of 2020 holds for the index, for, for the major you know, S&P 500 US index? Do you think it'll stay at this level or keep rising? Or do you think there may be uh, a further fall in the months to come? All those things are possible. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, we, we simply don't know. It's a correct observation that, that you make, Alec, that the S&P 500 and some of the other developed market equity indices are showing relatively elevated PEs compared to their, their own history. But, I mean, there's, a, I guess, a question mark around whether consensus has got the right sort of E in that PE number at the moment, just given the uncertainties that exist in this environment. But there, there may be another factor at play here, which is worth investors thinking through. To the extent that it's true that the S&P 500, as an example of an index, uh, the S&P 500 forward PE ratio at the moment is elevated relative to its own history. It's also true that long-term interest rates are very low at the moment compared to their own history. And Finance 101, you, you know, your basic discounted cash flow valuation, the same free cash flows over time discounted back to a present value today using a lower interest rate, like the interest rate environment that's currently prevailing, all else equal, an asset, including an equity in that environment is worth more. And so therefore, there may be some validity to the, the index, like the S&P, having a higher P ratio at the moment. It may be deserved given long-term interest rates are very low, and it seems the intent of the Fed, I mean, this could change, but it seems as we're sitting here today, the intent of the Fed is to keep those long-term interest rates and risk-free rates at a very low level. That is a very important input into people's valuation and discounted cash flow analysis. And so that could partially explain why PE levels are elevated relative to history at the moment. It's just long-term interest rates are so low relative to history as well. So Chris, as Ren mentioned, we're going to jump into a few stocks. And before the interview, we asked if you could identify a couple that were, you, you know, you were finding interesting. And you said there were three that were facing a lot of cross currents in this environment. And they were Facebook, 
Visa and you also mentioned Tencent. So what we'd like to do is is take all three and maybe go through them and understand the thesis and perhaps, you know, what are they currently facing in the environment and then perhaps how you're positioning them in the portfolio. So let's start with Facebook. What is the current thesis for the investment in Facebook and has COVID, I guess, changed that at all or strengthened the argument? The investment case for and the attraction to Facebook has really been recognising that, look, I think the current statistics are something like a third of humanity is engaging with one of Facebook's apps on a monthly basis and a quarter of humanity (laughs) dials into one of those apps every single day and say we can offer, you know, superior targeting, measurement and overall effective advertising on our platform compared to mostly legacy media but other media as well. And that, you know, allows Facebook to charge. It's obviously growing the volumes of ads because their clients earn higher returns advertising. They earn higher returns on their marketing expenditure with Facebook compared to other advertising options. And so the thesis is just recognising the strength of that network. Facebook over time in the core of its business, should be able to continue taking share of the total advertising bucket. It's actually a pretty similar thesis for Alphabet and the core advertising part of Alphabet, which is search. So Alphabet in search advertising, Facebook in social networks and online advertising, both of those businesses, similar investment case over the long term, taking share of the total advertising bucket. Also for Facebook, can result in just that degree of audience and the size and the scale of that audience allows them to explore other ways of monetizing that audience. And you might have seen and the audience might have read about a few weeks ago, Facebook doing things like Facebook shops, you know, and Facebook's ability to take all of those people logging into its services every day or every month and then offer them more and more services over time whether it's shopping services, payment services, messaging services, you know, who knows where this ends up, but they've got an enormous audience that's very engaged and it just gives Facebook a lot of optionality to to continue to grow that business in very attractive ways over, over the long term. But to your question, in the short term, it is, as I mentioned, at its core, an advertising business. And the advertising industry has traditionally been a cyclical industry. It's one of the first expenses that businesses will cut when their revenues are being pressured. They can't get traffic in the door in an environment like this. Why spend that advertising money? It's a cyclical industry. It is suffering during this period, the overall industry. It is also an industry that will recover at some point as well as businesses start reopening and economies start recovering. But until then, there's just some short-term headwinds for a business like Facebook. So we recognize that. That's one of the reasons why we were sort of moderating the exposure to that business within the portfolio. But, you know, we didn't want to exit, fully exit a business like Facebook or for Alphabet for those reasons around the long-term strength and competitive position of those businesses and the growth opportunity provided by firstly, the ability to take share of the total advertising industry, but then to leverage their core platforms into more and more and different services over time as well. Um, So that's really the heart of the investment case, as well as recognizing some of the cross currents and the short-term headwinds that Facebook's exposed to. Now, Chris, Facebook's a really interesting one because obviously social media has these competing forces of on one hand, having such a strong network effect when it can get people on the platform. But at the same time, that network effect can vanish pretty quickly when they're disrupted. And, you know, we only need to think about MySpace back in the day 
whose network effect really didn't count for much when Facebook disrupted it. There's obviously a lot of chat about TikTok and it seems like the, you know, the younger generation are definitely more uh, interested in TikTok than they are in Instagram and Facebook. How do you think about building a long-term investment thesis for something like Facebook when there's, you know, a disruptor that's coming in and there's so much uncertainty around how sticky the network is or how prone to disruption it, it may be? That's such a good question. There's so many different ways to take that. So, so some of the, the initial thoughts that come to mind is, of course, we're paying attention to the challenges, competitive challenges, regulatory challenges, other threats to Facebook over time. And that's coming back to that first part of the process where I mentioned the investment team all day, every day, they're thinking about the long-term prospects for these companies and their industries. And those prospects are both positive and negative. And for a business like Facebook, that will include competition, as it does for all of our businesses. But TikTok is definitely a competitive threat for Facebook that we are paying attention to at the moment, just as we did you know, with Snapchat previously, and just as we think through the regulatory risks for business like Facebook. We're trying to think through all of these various downside scenarios and stress test them and apply them, run different valuation scenarios, all those sort of things to make sure that We've considered them, we've factored them in, we've tried to get the position sizing in the portfolio roughly right for good, bad outcomes, you know, because we know we're going to get both through a cycle, whether it's economic cycle causing headwinds or tailwinds to the business, whether it's competition changes, we're doing all of those things for all of the businesses in the portfolio and, and Facebook's no different. And so TikTok is definitely front of mind for us. We're aware of it. We're mindful that, that you know, it's, it's a hell of a competitor they're going up against with Facebook, but they seem to be having some success. It's a slightly different offering, you know, so it is appealing to a slightly different audience. Of course, there will be overlap with Facebook users as well, but it's not the first time we've seen Facebook be subject to competitive threat. You know, we, we've seen um, Snapchat come and go very initially, as you pointed out, it was MySpace and MySpace was actually the incumbent network. But it speaks to once you reach a critical scale and a critical mass of users and the very nature of network effects themselves is they become so sticky. It's so hard to switch and leave a network when you know all your colleagues, all your content, all your data, all your pictures, everything else is in that network to switch across to some other network. It's not impossible, but the barriers are pretty high. And TikTok is having some success, so we'll continue to pay some attention to it. But having thought through the risks presented to Facebook by TikTok, as well as regulatory threats and other issues, we still feel pretty comfortable that that's a still a very attractive long-term investment for us. And recognising that the advertising industry around the world is enormous, and there's definitely going to be more than one winner. Uh, we think Alphabet and Facebook will, will certainly be a lot larger businesses in the, in, in the future. TikTok may also be a beneficiary in the future as well. Yeah, I'm very interested in, in in TikTok, especially given that Alex's been putting up a lot of dance videos <laughs> over the COVID period. <laughs> so to get him on board, it must be a pretty good platform. <laughs> I'd be interested to know, Chris, have you been taking this opportunity to buy more into Facebook or is it a, is it a watch and hold at this stage? How have you sort of positioned Facebook in the fund over the last couple of months? So we were trimming the position back in March and we haven't taken any meaningful action since then. So, you know, we, we disclosed the position at the end of March. And again, it, it was just, we didn't exit it. Uh, we, we love the long-term prospects. We just wanted to sort of right-size the exposure to that uh, individual holding as we did with Alphabet as well for similar reasons. And look, as we get more confident in the sort of the risk 
adjusted return profile for investing, you know, we'll look to deploy some of that cash. But given the macro concerns that we still have, given prevailing prices for most equities, it seems to us that there's still some meaningful downside risks that potentially aren't priced into markets and to, to various share prices. So, we, you know, we think it's prudent to have some exposure to these wonderful businesses, and that's why we have large shareholdings in them. But, you know, as we sit here today, we're not sort of itching to pull the trigger in any meaningful way, but we're searching, you know, all across our universe. That's how myself, the rest of the team, we're, we're trying to find those, those best ideas that we can add to this portfolio. And it may be the case that the best ideas already reside in the portfolio. It might be deploying the cash that we have into the existing holdings, including Facebook, but it might be the case that we can find some other wonderful things to bring into the portfolio or to potentially replace some of the existing investments. So Chris, one last question on Facebook. Well, unless unless Bryce has another one, but their revenue numbers continue to go up, but their their EBIT number and their net profit number went down from 2018 to 2019. When you think about the growth runway in some of these already extremely large companies, how do you sort of, I guess, predict the future and sort of think about what the, the future for these companies may hold? Yeah, we don't get too scared about those sort of short-term margin pressures so long as they're being done for the right reasons. And by what I mean for the right reasons, to be very clear, is creating long-term per share intrinsic value for the shareholders. And if Facebook, as I think is the case, is investing to widen its moat and to create future value and future options that will benefit shareholders over the long term, then we applaud that. You know, we're very encouraging of businesses trading off some short-term pain, investing, investing heavily in, in wonderful opportunities to create long-term shareholder value. And I think that's been a, a core part of the recent margin weakness for Facebook. Some of it has been associated with these future investments. Some of it has also just been a factor of needing to, quote unquote, sort of secure the platform, increase the number of fact checkers and people reviewing content on the platform, improving the overall experience of that platform, which in so doing, though it costs them something, it really widens the moat. You know, so when you talk about challenges potentially like TikTok in the futures ahead, you need to look at the quantum of the increase in the cost base, which is in the order of tens of billions of dollars at Facebook over the last few years, and recognize that any potential threat or challenger to Facebook over time is going to need to spend billions and billions and billions of dollars before they have a drop of revenue, before they have their first dollar of revenue, just to reach the same sort of effectiveness in terms of content and security and data protection and stuff like that on the platform. There's an enormous amount of fixed cost that goes into that, which is a real barrier to entry for other people to compete in. So it, you know, we're not concerned in the short term at all around weakening margins, declining margins, so long as those margins are being spent to widen the moat and to build long-term shareholder value. So Chris, one more question on Facebook before we move on to the next stock. You mentioned regulatory pressure there and on both sides of the political divide, it feels like there's regulatory risk. On the left, the Democrats are talking about breaking up big tech and potentially separating Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp into separate companies. On the right, we now have Donald Trump tweeting about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which provides protection for a lot of these platforms that aggregate information. How do you think about the the uncertainty and the regulatory risk around a company like Facebook? It's probably the most important risk. You know, I don't want to uh, understate 
competitive threats like TikTok and things like that in the future. But the number one risk we've been most concerned by and thoughtful of regarding Facebook has been the regulatory threats to that business. And you're right, there's a few different channels through which that regulatory threat, and there's a third one that, that I should come back to as well, but you're right, there's the sort of the antitrust and big tech and breaking up big tech threat. Some of that I think will be, you know, the probabilities of that will probably shift around later this year when we know who the next president of the US is and their appetite to, to take on big tech and potentially break them up. You know, Elizabeth Warren had some pretty substantial policy announcements around that. She's obviously not the front runner, but whether, you know, if she was the running mate for for Biden, the probabilities would be different. So, you know, we need to think through those things. And we are. Just to sort of address that, there, there is the possibility, of course, that if you were to break apart Facebook today, which we don't think is likely, but you can't say it's impossible. But if that were to happen and the market had to value Facebook separately from Instagram, separately from WhatsApp, there is potentially an argument that the, those three or four apps that would be created in that breakup process would be worth more than the current share price today because the market would be assigning a value to Instagram and to WhatsApp independent of their position within the total Facebook company today. And they are very, very strong, growing, profitable platforms. So, you know, there is that to, to think through as well. It's not just a, a threat. On the Section 230 risk, yeah, we'll have to see what happens. Trump's obviously thrown it out there. It doesn't seem like there's much appetite in Congress, in the Senate to really run with that. But again, Joe Biden said some things about Section 230. If he's to become president later this year, we'll have to think about it. But it is such a fundamental pillar to the way the internet works. In our minds, it seems very, very unlikely that they would remove Section 230. Whether you could make some adjustments to it, that, that's possible. But getting, getting rid of Section 230 in its entirety seems implausible. But, you know, we'll continue to, to watch that space. The third channel I wanted to touch on, which doesn't get a lot of attention, but we're, we're considering, is just recognising in this world and in the world, you know, over the next few years in which governments have provided a lot of fiscal support to economies, but that has resulted in some pretty stretched government balance sheets in need of repair, we just recognise that our universe of very high quality, very profitable businesses may likely be one of the profit pools that governments look to to try and repair their own balance sheets, which could take the form of higher corporate tax and things like that. It may also be tech levies and things like that for businesses like Facebook and Alphabet. They may be subject to various forms of taxation going forward, which is another potential regulatory threat that we're thinking through for those businesses. Fascinating. So let's move to Visa, Chris, which was the second stock that you you mentioned. So if we if we go back to the similar question with Facebook, what's the thesis around Visa and, and what's making it appealing and perhaps how has COVID changed that at all, you know, given what's happened over the past few months? So starting with the long-term thesis and again, the attraction in a way is very similar to, to Facebook in that at the, the core of it is a network effect. And with Visa, on one side of that network is three and a half billion people around the world that have Visa card credentials. Three and a half billion is half of humanity. <laughs> so it's, it's an enormous number wow. on one side of the network. And on the other side of the network, you've got about 65 million merchants around the world that accept Visa's debit cards and credit cards and payment credentials. That is an incredibly powerful network that, again, is so hard to replicate. And imagine trying to be a new entrant in this space to compete against a business that's got half of humanity using it and tens of millions of merchants around the world accepting it. It's that classic chicken and egg 
where it would be so hard for someone new to come into this industry, which is why the industry today effectively has a duopoly between Visa and MasterCard with American Express present in some markets as well. So that's what we would define as the sort of the moat and the competitive advantage of the business. Part of the long-term thesis as well is just, you know, what they call the war on cash, their ability over time to continue converting cash and check-based payments to card-based payments. And this is something that's been playing out for years and can continue to play out for years and years, if not decades to come, which is great because that provides a sort of long-term tailwind behind the business. But it's the nature of the cost and the capital structure for Visa, which is even more attractive because you have that long-term secular payment shift driving the revenues and driving the volumes for the business, but it's largely a fixed cost business. And so therefore, the margins keep expanding over time with more and more transactions. You think about the incremental cost of the next transaction for Visa to process doesn't cost them much at all, if anything. And so with all these additional transactions over time, more and more of that just drops down to the bottom line speaking to the fixed cost nature of the business, but then there's also very little capital required in a business like this. So they're able to take those profits out. There's not a meaningful need to reinvest, though they make the appropriate level of reinvestments. Back to the same argument around Facebook, we love when companies make value accretive investments and we encourage that. But a business like Visa doesn't have meaningful capital requirements. So most of the proceeds and the profits, um, some gets paid out in dividends, a lot of it gets used to buy back shares over time, which is, again, a very a very value-accretive way of returning capital. And so you just have these elevated levels of compounding revenues, operating profits, earnings on a per-share basis, growing at very healthy double-digit rates over time. And then it potentially gets better than that over time because the network that I mentioned earlier has now been opened up so that Visa can participate in different payment flows going forward. It's traditionally been a transaction where funds flow from folks like you and us and our, our cards and our bank accounts to merchants, to businesses, what they call a consumer to business transaction. But now the network's been opened up to enable peer-to-peer transactions, business-to-business transactions, government-to-business, government-to-consumer, which just expands their addressable market enormously. So they are all the long-term attractions to Visa. But in the short term, associated with COVID, to your question, there is some pressure on the business because Visa and MasterCard actually make some of their highest revenue yields and some of their highest margins on what is referred to as a cross-border transaction, which is when folks like us, we travel overseas and we use our Visa debit card or credit card. That's very profitable business, a very profitable transaction for Visa when that happens. But of course, in this period with travel restrictions, there are very few of those transactions at the moment. So we we understand that. We know that there's some short-term headwinds to that part of Visa's business while the travel restrictions in place, but there are some shorter term offsets as well. So that's one cross current, a negative cross current, a positive cross current in this environment is that there's been an explosion in e-commerce, a massive channel shift from people transacting offline because they can't in a world with closed physical storefronts. People have had to migrate online and transact online. And of course, when we're transacting online with Amazon or eBay or, or whoever else, we can't use cash. It has to be a card that facilitates that transaction. And so that's just rocket fuel for the growth of Visa and MasterCard and the card networks. And the other dynamic associated with COVID in the short term is it is accelerating the growth in contactless payments. You know, people don't want to handle cash 
uh, or accept cash if you're a business in this world where a virus is moving around, you know, a quite transmissible virus. So people have been less willing to use cash for transactions. It's accelerating this contactless trend. So there are puts and takes. Let's say in the short term, the negatives slightly offset the positives that that travel business is suffering in the short term and will suffer for a couple of quarters and potentially you know, a year or so ahead of us. But with a sort of five to t- 10 year investment horizon, the tailwinds behind this business and its competitive dominance in its industry like MasterCard is very, very attractive. And so again, we're just, we were slightly reducing the exposure during March, but we did not exit the position. We still have a meaningful investment in Visa and it is one of the candidates of things that we would love to own more of at a, at a more attractive share price. Yeah, I love Visa and I should disclose that I that I own Visa and you know to your point the net margin above 50% it just it just generates cash. It's an interesting business. I guess the question is with a duopoly that more or less exists between Visa and Mastercard, why is it that you have a preference for Visa over its equally large competitor? It's almost an accident of history. What I mean by that is we invested in Visa in the High Conviction Fund when it was slightly cheaper than MasterCard when we made that investment. In the Global Fund, we own both for the same reasons. And to your point, we, we find both equally desirable over the long term. But when we were making the investment, just in the case of High Conviction Fund, recognizing it has fewer slots, effectively, it's only got eight to 12 positions, we just made Visa a single investment. But let's call that our payments exposure just through Visa. Our payments exposure in high conviction is very similar to our payments exposure in global fund. We just achieve that exposure through both Visa and MasterCard, but we love them both. You've made the the bull case very strongly there, and there's a lot to like about Visa. I'm interested to hear you make the opposite case and argue against your investment in some ways. What are some of the risks that you see for Visa that might knock it off its course and potentially not realize the potential that you're seeing in it as a business? In a way, it's kind of similar to Facebook as well. It is the nature of the businesses that we invest in and that we follow these very high-quality businesses. More often than not, it's regular regulation. That, that's the top threat. It's the, that was the case with Facebook. It's probably the case with Visa as well. It's less a competitive threat. We've been paying attention to years to the potential disruption threats from the wallets and fintech disruptors and things like that. We're actually finding more and more they, they are partnering with Visa because they recognize the strength of Visa's network rather than trying to displace Visa or anything like that. So the most important threat probably for Facebook going forward, for Visa as well, uh, Visa, is regulation, which could take the shape of interchange regulation. We're seeing some new payment directives out of Europe opening up uh, payment networks and banking relationships in network. The Fed Reserve in the United States is exploring faster payment infrastructure, which could potentially displace the need for certain transactions to run on Visa's rails. Merchants might instead prefer to use the rails created by the central bank, which is not too dissimilar from FPOS here in Australia. So different countries around the world are exploring those sort of real-time payment infrastructure investments. But, but just to summarise, again, it's probably regulation over competition. We pay attention to both, but it's probably regulation that's the number one long-term threat to Visa as well. So one risk that I didn't hear you mention there was the risk of Bitcoin throwing all <laughs> traditional payment systems out the window. <laughs> Is that something you even think about? The underlying technology, yes. You know, the blockchain technology, 
uh, which, which incidentally has relevance across many of the, the portfolio companies in our universe. And look, to, to be fair, Visa is very well aware of this. They're running a bunch of experiments internally to take advantage of the blockchain technology. Bitcoin, the cryptocurrencies, probably not a threat today. It's, trying to think, it's, it's hard to think through the problem that they solve that relates to, to Visa and to the, to the transactions that Visa processes. It's an incredible infrastructure that Visa has built around the world. But it's one of those other things. We, we, we do pay attention to it. We'll continue to pay attention to it over time. But it's not. it wouldn't be towards the top of the, the key concerns for Visa or MasterCard at the moment. So before we move to the final stock, how has your position size in Visa changed since February, if at all? It's another one that we we just we trimmed slightly the exposure back in March, and we haven't changed it since then. But like I mentioned, it it'd be a top candidate at the right price and subject to other relative opportunities. It'd be a top candidate to be uh, to own more of that business over time. So moving on to this third stock, which is Tencent, the Chinese tech stock, maybe one that people are less familiar with than uh, Visa and Facebook, which are more household names across the West. So. Let's start the same way. Can you introduce the thesis, but also for people that are less familiar with what Tencent does as a business, can you also just introduce what it does, how it operates and where it operates? Yeah, you bet. So where it operates is pretty simple. It's it's almost entirely in China. So it's another one of these very dominant tech platforms in China. And at the core of the business for Tencent today is something called WeChat, which is the audience can kind of think like as a, a bit like a Facebook social network. Uh, WeChat's the leading messaging and social network platform in China. 1.2 billion monthly users, which in a population of about 1.4 billion, including children, teenagers, adults, elderly, they've got 1.2 billion users. So it speaks to the dominance of that business uh, that they have in China. And Kind of like I was describing early with Facebook, but in a more advanced way, Tencent's actually done a much better job of this, but I think this is what Facebook is going to try to emulate over time. WeChat has really become a super app in China. And what I mean by that is that those 1.2 billion people that come into that portal and use it in a sort of day-to-day way for messaging and social networking and things like that, they've actually used that now as a funnel to direct that audience and their engagement and their attention into a whole heap of other different services. So that could be their online gaming business, which is the largest online gaming business on the planet. So they're the leader in online gaming around the world. Tencent is now. They have a a very large and and fast-growing digital media business. So think about uh, in the Western world, of course, we have Spotify, we have Netflix, those sort of businesses. The equivalent businesses in China, some of the leading digital media, video and music businesses are operated by Tencent within the WeChat ecosystem. They've got very strong position in fintech and digital payments, again, through WeChat Pay and their association with WeChat. They are growing strongly in terms of cloud computing and merchant services and things like that. So it's really become a portal through which Chinese citizens, nearly the entire Chinese population, it's the digital portal through which they are living their, their digital lives. They're engaging with a whole range of services on a daily basis, and that is just further driving the stickiness and the incumbency of that platform over time. So an Australian audience can think of it like Facebook, but it's almost like a Facebook plus an Uber 
plus a Netflix, plus a Spotify, all kind of wrapped into one and a, more, a few other things in addition to those. But that's how an Australian audience would want to think about Tencent. Tencent's an interesting business. It's it's just unbelievably huge. And obviously, being in China, there's, there's some risks inherent in uh, investing in Chinese businesses, even though it's not listed in the mainland, it's listed in Hong Kong. So if we start macro, and then we get into the company specifics, how do you think about investing in a Chinese business and the risks that are associated with that? At a high level, in no different way than we think about the risks associated with investments in businesses anywhere, you know, every business obviously involves risk. And we've talked about the regulatory and competitive threats to to our other holdings. Equally true for a business like Tencent. It is, as I mentioned, nearly 100% exposed to to China, but it is listed in Hong Kong. And you get great transparency in terms of their, their accounting and their results and their reporting. So there's been no issue in terms of understanding the business which isn't necessarily true for some other Chinese businesses listed in China, where we genuinely have a hard time getting our hands on good information regarding those businesses. That's not the case at all for Tencent or for Alibaba, for that matter. There's not much of a risk there in terms of disclosure and transparency and those sort of things. Again, it's probably regulation. You know, I've said it now for Visa and Facebook. They are a very dominant business within China. And China just has a different government system and economic system. And to operate and for their social license, over time, they need to be in the good graces of the Chinese government. And this is deliberate on our part. They are completely aligned with where the Chinese Communist Party is trying to take China over the long term, which is to develop their digital capabilities, as well as develop their the consumption side of their economy. And Alibaba and Tencent absolutely achieve both of those policy goals for the Communist Party. It would be very difficult for us to invest in any sort of business that run, ran counter to where the Communist Party was trying to take China over time. But we think they've been very good digital citizens, particularly during this crisis recently. You know, it was Tencent's digital infrastructure that enabled much of the, the country while it was shut down to work from home and school from home. The engagement across those various services of Tencent that I mentioned earlier really exploded during this period. It's also the case that Alibaba provided similar services, you know, their logistics capabilities and their e-commerce allowed people to, to shop from home, have goods transported around the country while so much of that was in was in shutdown. So both of these two countries have played their cards well during this recent crisis. And if the country supported the society, improved their social standing and goodwill and reputation and all those sort of things, but that over time will be something we have to keep paying attention to is just whether they remain aligned with the direction the, the the government in China is trying to take that country. But it seems, you know, quite clear to us that that is the direction the government wants to go longer term, is developing their uh, their, their state, you know, their, their, their national champions, particularly in the areas of technology, but also developing a domestic consumption economy and both Alibaba and Tencent and their infrastructure certainly facilitate that over time. So if we move from the sort of macro regulatory risk in the political environment. My next question comes to its growth runway and its potential growth runway. It's obviously massive in China and it it already has most of the Chinese population being quite regular users, but it doesn't really, it hasn't really grown, you know, in the West and outside of China. How do you think it's going to continue to sustain the pretty unbelievable growth rate that it's had when it's already got most Chinese citizens as users? 
I think it's going to be different for different parts of their business. So maybe just to sort of break down some of the big buckets, online gaming, I think there is a very long runway for international penetration for that business. And they are, I think the latest quote was, I think 15 to 20% of the online gaming revenues for Tencent are already generated outside China. So they've got, they've had some success. There's progress there. They're investing ahead of that growth. So there is an international opportunity for the online gaming business over time. I'm sure they can continue to penetrate in China, but probably increasingly the users and the amount of time spent and the engagement will come just as much outside China as inside China over time. Another big part of the business is that sort of the social network and the messaging platforms and their ability, Tencent's ability to monetize those platforms with online advertising. And I'd say we're still pretty early in the journey of monetization. You're absolutely right that the user numbers are high and the engagement levels are high, but their ability to add what's called ad load, you know, that the number of ads each user sees on a per hour basis or per day basis is still very, very low relative to some of the so, the, the Western social networks. So I still think just given the engagement and the user base they have, they can continue to grow the average revenue per user through things such as just adding more ads into their daily engagement on that platform. They'll be able to then, as I mentioned, monetize that audience through online video and online music. They're growing subscriptions very rapidly, but again, it's still a relatively small fraction of that total 1.2 billion user base that they can penetrate. So there, there is still a runway ahead of their digital media businesses. That the payments business, you know, there's a lot of businesses here, but the payments business, again, is very similar to Visa and MasterCard thesis where they can just continue to digitize payments in China and in Southeast Asia, where they're starting to spread over time, it won't be, you know, that, that's not a trend that will happen just this quarter or just this year. That will play out very gradually over a long, long time. But there's ability to grow both the payment side of that fintech business, as well as expand into other products, you know, offering wealth management services, insurance, lending, finding more and more ways of monetizing the user base of that payments platform. And everything that I've just mentioned so far really relates to Tencent's relationship with their users and their consumers, where they are directing more and more investment and where more and more of the growth will come from is relationships with enterprise customers. And this will be the growth over time in their cloud computing business in what's called WeChat mini programs, which is effectively creating almost a storefront for merchants to engage with customers within that WeChat ecosystem. So it's not too dissimilar from what Facebook has just announced with shops. WeChat and Tencent have been doing that for some time, and there's still an enormous amount of growth in that in that channel. And when you think about it, what they're trying to do in a way, what Tencent's trying to do is make WeChat almost like an operating system. You know, it is the operating system through which instead of, you know, in the Western world here in Australia, we we open up our phones and we've got the Uber app, we've got the Netflix app. What I think WeChat is trying to create is those apps will sit within WeChat. So it will become the operating system layer through which you then access the ride-hailing services and the digital media services. They will be sitting within WeChat, not as a separate app on your phone, which just reinforces the stickiness and also the long-term monetization to your question of those users on both the consumer and the enterprise side over time. 
Fascinating business. Seems like they have fingers in almost all the pies possible. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Before we move to to wrap up the the interview, Chris, you mentioned at the start of the show that Tencent was a, a new position in the fund over the last few months. Was that just because it hit a price that was attractive to you? Obviously, it had been on the watch list for a while. Yeah, what was the sort of the motivation there? Just price? Largely, yes. I mean, it's, it's price in relation to quality and prospects. And just recognizing that we were uh, in March, as I mentioned, we exited a position in Estee Lauder. We exited a position. No, sorry. Let me let me correct that. We exited a position in LVMH in the high conviction fund, and we exited a position in Young Brands. And we were also trimming a lot of other positions. We had an abundance of cash at the time. Part of that direct uh, the proceeds from those actions was directed towards a new position in Tencent, which just was relatively more attractive in this world where we've got a relatively more positive view on the prospects for China relative to the rest of the world and recognising, as we have for some time, the attractiveness of a business like Tencent over time. Uh, it just got to a price uh, in March where relative to the rest of the portfolio and relative to the rest of our universe, that was the position we wanted to be investing in. Well, Chris, you've mentioned the abundance of cash a couple of times, and I'm very excited to hear about or read about how you deploy that cash. I think listening to you talk about these three stocks, I'm sure there's uh, there's going to be some very interesting investments, and I look forward to to seeing seeing what you do with that cash. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> we like to end the interview with the final three questions, and we've got a little bit of a twist on them for this interview. Before we get into that, just want to say an absolute thank you for taking the time. We love listening to you speak about stocks and I'm sure we could do it for a lot longer, but mm. we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. If people want to read more about you and more about the high conviction fund that you run, where's the best place that they can do that? I'd send people to the Magellan website. I think it is a very good resource and it probably before getting into any of the individual funds, it's just worth reading through the philosophy and the process described on the website. We touched on that a few times earlier in the conversation, but understanding the framework that, we, that which we use, and then people can start thinking through which of the different portfolios might be more attractive to them. So as we mentioned, we like to wrap up with the final three questions. We're going to keep the uh, COVID focus and uh, put a bit of a twist on them this time. So the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned from this market crash? That markets are genuinely unpredictable. I, mean, I don't think that's a new lesson, but it's certainly been reinforced in the short term. Markets in the short term, the medium term are completely unpredictable. And this, you know, Ben Graham's been saying this for decades, that in the short term, they're a voting machine. And in the long term, they're a weighing machine. And there are lots of lessons to take away from that. You know, if the market and, and certain aspects of the macro environment are completely unpredictable, you need to invest accordingly. What I sort of mean by that is you need to do everything you can to tip the odds in your favour of good outcomes, recognising you're likely to be investing over periods in which good things and bad things will happen. You know, there'll be good economic conditions, bad economic conditions. There'll be inflation, deflation. You'll probably have social stability or political and geopolitical instability, conflict, all those sort of things with a long-term investment horizon. You're probably going to experience all of those things. So invest accordingly because you're going to have the good times and the bad times. And so at least in our world and to my mind, that sort of focuses attention on those incredibly resilient and dominant high-quality businesses, you know, trying to find those 
industries that have the long-term secular growth tailwinds behind them, recognising there will be a cycle and ups and downs, but to have that tailwind behind you over time, as opposed to some sort of head headwind you're com combating every day, dealing with businesses that don't have much balance sheet risk or much sort of fragility to their capital structure, very focused on costs and things like this. That insistence, as I've mentioned a few times, on always having a very high margin of safety, all those things we can do to try and ensure, you can't guarantee, but try and ensure good outcomes over the long term because we just don't know what's around the corner. Yeah, I think that's a lesson that uh, a lot of people have learned this year. And well, speaking personally, it's going to be one that uh, stays with me for the rest of my investing life. So the second question we want to ask is, we've recently been asking a lot of the experts that we interview for a bold prediction for the rest of 2020. Obviously, there's been so much uncertainty so far, and I'm sure there'll be plenty of uncertainty to come. So we're not going to hold you to this. When you think about the rest of the year... Well, we are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, when you think about the rest of the year, do you have any bold predictions for uh, how it may all play out? And, and this can be market generally, or if you have a specific stock that you want to make a bold prediction for, wherever your mind goes. My mind goes to my prior comments. I, I, I don't think I can say exactly what I just said and then turn around and suggest like the bold prediction would be if we catch up in December, we will almost certainly be talking about something that we're not even considering right now. And that's just, just the nature of things. So that's the bold prediction is there are things that will happen by the end of this year that we don't even know about right now. And that will be important. Of course, there's all the day-to-day -day noise and stuff like that, but there will be some important developments later this year, which we haven't even thought of right now. We'll book that well, session in for December and then we'll uh, we'll see how yeah. that all played out. <laughs> <laughs> so then the last question, and this one we're very interested to hear the answer on. Both Bryce and I are interested in Magellan. I actually own some Magellan and I, a lot of our community are interested in Magellan as well. There are a number of options. You run the High Conviction Fund. Hamish runs the Global Equities Fund. Which one should we be investing in and why? <laughs> That's a cheeky question. Um, so let me clarify again. Hamish and I co-manage the High Conviction strategy, and he is the lead PM on that. So he's the final decision maker on High Conviction, just as he is for the Global Fund as well. I think the diplomatic answer is probably the why not have both? You know, <laughs> <laughs> constrain yourself to one or the other. But, but what we're trying to achieve in the high conviction strategy is just giving clients exposure to those wonderful businesses that have that durability and quality to them that should allow them, given the economics of their business, given the dominance in their industries, to provide good compounding over the long term. But it's always so important for us to mention, in a very concentrated portfolio, like the high conviction strategy and a little, which is in some ways how it differs a bit from global, that high degree of concentration in individual investments just mean it's probably going to be a lumpier profile, return profile in the short term. And so people who are concerned by that, this may not be the best product for them and global fund might be something better suited to them. But hopefully with some good luck and good decision making, what we're trying to achieve, albeit with potentially a bit more volatility in the high conviction fund, is higher absolute returns over the long term. 
Well, we're certainly backing you in, Chris. So, yeah, looking forward to seeing how this all plays out because we're certainly going to be shareholders of Magellan for that for a long period of time. So thank you for your time today. It's been, again, a fascinating conversation. As Ren said, we could listen to you talk all day about stocks, but I'm sure you've got better things to do. So we'll leave it there. But on behalf of the community, again, thank you for your time. And we look forward to catching up in December to see how that bold <laughs> prediction played out. <laughs> Honestly, guys, it's, uh, it's, it's our pleasure, my pleasure. You, you guys are doing a great job. They're wonderful questions. Uh, thank you very much for making it so easy. Very happy to help out. Appreciate it. Thanks, nice Chris. One. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.